Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Joseph Weisberg with us. His book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the second Cold War, which he believes we're in right now. And, uh, Joseph, we were talking about Putin and uh, how ruthless he is, and uh, he did have that KGB background. Uh, he's got one real friend out there, and that's Medvedev, right? It's who? Uh, Medvedev, the former president oh, of yes, Russia. Oh, yes, 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 right. Well, that's the guy who was, you know, interesting. Putin stepped down for a term. And Medvedev took over and became president. And there's a pretty great story about how a lot of people encouraged Medvedev to stay president and to tell Putin he couldn't come back. And Medvedev, (laughs) maybe he might want to do that. And then Putin apparently sat him down and said, I will be coming back. And that was the end of the story. How long will Putin technically stay in office? Well, you know, he just amended the Constitution so he can stay for quite a long time. I don't think anybody knows if he will, and there are a lot of stories coming out of Russia that he's getting pretty tired and it's taking quite a toll on him. And if you look at him or listen to him, he, he does look like a guy who's maybe held on to his job a little too long for his own good. But we'll see. But as of right now, could you say comfortably that he has created a new dictatorship in Russia? I think it's complicated. You know, this is part of what I what I write about in the book, that when you think about that, you have to realize that Russia is not and never was a liberal democratic state the way that we are. And it's never, you know, this, this history goes back, you know, for hundreds of years between people in Russia who wanted to westernize more, who wanted to have more liberal democracy, and those who don't. And the pretty strong majority was always those who don't. We were talking about the Cold War that you and I remember so well. And in the United States, we always talked about the dissidents, people like Sakharov and Sharansky, who stood up to the system. And what I never realized at the time was they weren't very popular. I thought that these guys were heroes who must have had the support of almost the whole Soviet population. But in fact, only a very small proportion of people supported them. And even now, they're not really looked back on very fondly by most people. So it's a different kind of country with a different history, often you know, much more worried about stability and much more open to strong, tough leaders. So Putin is, in a sense, fulfilling that side of the Russian history and, and, I, guess, and I guess the Russian destiny. And you can call it dictatorship and autocracy, and it certainly has very strong elements of those things. But I don't think it should be seen from the perspective of an autocrat who's sort of preventing his country from having a liberal democracy, because that's not what they really want, most of them. What is their game plan, Joseph? What do they want? I would say if you look at the Russian people, you know, it's hard to generalize because they're as different and as broad-based as American people. They want all kinds of different things. But overall, Putin's quite popular. You know, he has approval ratings that would make any American president jealous. And what that seems to indicate is that people want someone who's going to keep the country intact, prevent chaos, you know, restore it to some great power status, keep the economy moving along, all really pretty understandable things. But the other question is, what does Putin himself want? And that's where I think things get really interesting, because I would say that when he took over in 1999, it seemed that he was actually open to a pretty constructive, positive relationship with the West. I don't know if you remember, but after September 11, he was extremely supportive, and he let us use Russian airspace and open military bases, you know, on his border uh, in Central Asia. And now all all that's changed. Now it's pretty clear that he wants to do whatever he can to undermine and even destroy American democracy. So what happened? And I guess I would say what happened is 
we engaged them in a back-and-forth battle, and we did as many difficult and devastating things to them as they did to us, and we whipped ourselves up into the Second Cold War. But the perspective I like to suggest is to realize it's not all their fault. It was something we all worked on together. During World War II, General George Patton, after the war, recommended we go after the Soviet Union and annihilate them. We did not do that, obviously. Was he right or wrong? He was wrong, just, you know, on a very basic human level. If you look at what happened in World War II, that country had suffered so unimaginably. You know, tens of millions of people died fighting that war. And, of course, we have to give them credit for our side winning the war because about 90%, maybe a little less, maybe 85% of Nazi troops were engaged fighting the Russians and the Soviets. That's true. And the Soviets defeated them. And so, you know, I don't know in what, in what universe that we could ever uh, justify annihilating other people anyway. But then now you look at it as a people who just sort of played a major role in winning your war with you. It would have been, it's pretty hard to imagine that. Well, at the outset, the Nazi Germany had a peace agreement with the Soviet Union. It was the Nazis that broke it. Yeah, that's a very interesting history as well, because... What we don't talk about as much here when, you, when I studied this in college and, and whatnot is that the Soviets and Stalin really were more interested in a pact with the West and with Britain and with France, but there was so much suspicion of them and so much hatred and fear of communism. The British, were, were, for example, were as scared or more scared of communism than they were early on of Nazism. So Stalin was kind of rebuffed in his efforts to have a an alliance with the West, and that's when he turned to Hitler. And I'm not saying that was okay or justifying that. I'm just saying it is understandable from any country that was in the position they were in trying to keep themselves from being destroyed. And, of course, it didn't work. Hitler turned on him anyway. Is that the same thing that happened with Fidel Castro? I mean, did he not want to turn to us for some help, and we kind of shunned him so he went directly to the Soviets? You know, I'm not as familiar with that history, but that is my impression. I, I, That's I, what I, I read. I, I'd heard that. That, that followed that storyline almost exactly, yeah. Of course, we were supporting Batista, who was in with the mob and everything else, and uh, what a disaster that was. I'd love to interview Raul Castro. He's the only one left of the bunch. Yeah, well, maybe you can get him on the show. That would be amazing. I don't know. Does he speak English, or is it just Spanish? That's a great question. You can translate her if he doesn't. So in your, in your book, tell me about the title, Russia Upside Down. What does that mean? I started looking back at my view about the Soviet Union during that first Cold War. And, you know, I was really with Ronald Reagan. I thought the Soviet Union was an evil empire. And I saw everything in those kind of black and white terms. They were bad. We were good. They were evil. We were virtuous. Everything about them was repressive and awful, and everything about us was democratic and about freedom and something to be admired. And I started thinking that I had really had, it's not that I had it literally upside down, that the reverse of that was true. What I didn't understand was that both countries were more complex than that. You know, the Soviet Union had bad things and good things about it, and we have bad things and good things about us. And that sort of, you know, sense of them that I only knew the bad stuff. That's all I learned. That's all I learned in school. That's all I saw in the media was everything that was wrong. And so I ended up with a kind of upside-down view of what that country was. Well, that's a good point. What did you think of Stalin? I mean, uh, history has labeled him as a butcher to his own people. There's no question that that's true. You know, he's one of the greatest butchers and mass murderers of his own people in all of history. 
the question that I got sort of engaged with when I was writing my book was, how come he's so popular, if that's true? And by the way, that is true. So how come... Popular or feared, Joseph? I think actually popular. I think we can look back now and say, certainly feared during Soviet times, but also popular. But there's not, no way to fear him now, because he's been dead a long time, and yeah. his popularity remains very high in, in Russia. And the only way I can come to understand that about somebody who, who kills so many of his own people is that they look at and focus on the positive things he did, and they find that more important than the butchering. So one example I like to give is that he's really the guy who built that country. You know, we tend to think of Lenin as the the father of the Soviet Union, but really when Lenin died, the country hadn't really come together yet. It was more like a kind of a skeleton or a framework for a country, and Stalin industrialized and brought the different nationalities together more fully and asserted federal authority, really made it a country, and, you know, people there, like everywhere, were patriotic, so they appreciated that. There were also millions of people who had been really poverty-stricken peasants who were brought up into a higher social class by Stalin, and for so many of them, maybe their kids, that was more important than killing people. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think the guy was one of the horrible monsters of all time, but I don't think those people who are fans of his are crazy or evil. I just think they're focused on other sides of him. What's your reaction to Russia pulling out of NATO? I'll tell you what it makes me think about. After this, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, I mean, really, in its, in its final months, there were a lot of meetings between Gorbachev and his people in the West. And historians argue about this, but more and more of them are saying that there was at least an informal promise from the West that we would not expand NATO east towards the Soviet Union after it fell. Well, what happened? Shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO started absorbing former members of the Warsaw Pact. That was the Soviet Defense Alliance. That was NATO's twin on the other side. So started taking those countries into NATO. And then after Putin took over, we started actually taking former Soviet republics into NATO. So part, you know, countries that had been part of the Soviet Union, and then after the collapse became independent countries. Well, pretty predictably, Putin and Russia and so many in Russia started feeling encircled and threatened just like we would feel if a defense alliance formed to fight us started expanding into South America and then Central America. So, you know, it's pretty fraught. We did, a, we did our part to create that conflict, and I don't think that pulling out of, you know, pulling the ambassador from NATO and saying he's not going to have diplomatic relations with NATO, I don't think that's a, a move that, seemed, that is so hard to understand. What would you do today, Joseph, if it were up to you? to work out relations with Russia? How would you approach it? I think it's a pretty tough thing to do because there's been such a tit-for-tat going on for so long, and the hostility is so great on both sides, and both sides really are doing so much damage. It's very hard to negotiate your way out of that. So what I would do is I would try to make a few unilateral moves to change the perception, to say to Russia, we're actually interested in getting out of this conflict, and we're going to put our money where our mouth is. So, for example, I would end the sanctions. I don't think the sanctions really work. I don't think they do any good. I think they're interfering in Russia's economy and trying to harm it. Let's stop doing it. And I'm not telling you, George, that the next day the Russians would, you know, stop their propaganda in the United States or anything like that. But I think it would be an opening move to say, we don't want to be in this fight anymore. Let's pull back. Had Gorbachev stayed in office... 
Might we have worked out a better relationship with what would have been Russia then after the Soviet Union collapsed? I think that's pretty likely. You know, Gorbachev was a, a, a really in so many ways a great man, and even though he was a devoted communist and really believed in communism, he was also a great humanist and really believed in all in freedom much more the way we do. And he wanted his people to you know, have freedom of speech, be able to write and think freely and do what they wanted. So had he continued to reform the Soviet Union in that direction, I would not be surprised if today we would have a better relationship than we do. When you were talking about how Putin's popularity is so high, I, I suspect, uh, Joseph, that some people who are polled or called are afraid to say the truth. It's an interesting question because certainly, you know, there was no, there was no, the only polling that anybody in the Soviet Union was the KGB, who had, all, they didn't do literally exact polling, but they had all kinds of ways to try to figure out what the population was thinking and feeling, including, you know, asking people questions. But there's a, there's a pretty strong consensus among people who know more about this than I do that the independent polling that's done in Russia is probably roughly accurate. There's this one organization, the Levada Center, and they are not under the state, or sometimes, you know, threatened and repressed a bit by the government, but they are not under its thumb at all. And I, I think people believe that they're able to get fairly accurate results. I'm sure you're right. Old habits die hard, and I'm sure there are some people who don't feel safe saying what they really think, but I think there's a lot of reason to think that probably most people are responding honestly. And, of course, here's the humanitarian question. Why can't these nations, China, us, Iran, all of them, Israel, why can't we all get along? Why can't we get along? I, I don't, it's, it's so puzzling to me. You know, the, I, it's, I think about the Soviet Union and why we were so angry at them in such a conflict, right? Because they were communist and they were atheist and opposed to religion and they were opposed to any kind of sort of basic freedom for their people. Well, really, that has changed significantly in just the direction we wanted. Right? They're no longer communist in Russia. They're no longer atheist. The state is, you know, very involved with the Russian Orthodox Church and trying to use Christianity to sort of gain legitimacy. They certainly aren't, you know, they haven't embraced Western liberal freedom like us, but they're less repressive than they were in Soviet times. But fighting like crazy. So, so what is it about? It, it doesn't seem to me it's about much other than needing an enemy and wanting somebody to fight with. Well, it's uh, it, it, what a planet we could all build if we didn't fight and kill. Uh, it's it's sort of it's nice to think about and kind of sad because there doesn't seem to be much sense we're moving in that direction, does there? Do you see a World War Three on the horizon? I don't like to predict much because you know all that happens when you predict things is you I end up. I know, but you're you you know you're an insider. You know things. Well, I don't, I don't see it around the corner. Yeah, I, you know, I think that most, if you look at the United States, if you look at China, if you look at Russia, I think there's enough sober-minded leadership uh, to keep anything like that from happening. But the problem is that then something catches you by surprise. Then something you weren't expecting happens, and you, and you can go down pretty fast, as you know. What would it take for this second Cold War to come to an end? More than anything else, I mean, you know, I mentioned, for example, pulling back on sanctions, but more than actions, it's going to take a change of heart, a different perspective of looking at things. And, you know, Russia has to do that for themselves. We're not responsible for how they look at the world, but we are responsible for how we look at the world. So for me, 
the thing we can do is stop blaming them for everything, stop assuming that the whole conflict is their fault, stop thinking that they're trying to destroy us when we're so innocent and did nothing to provoke it, and recognize that it's a two-way street. And just that change in perspective, I think, could help. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.